This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hello and welcome back, everybody. As we continue to dive deeper into this series on how to build strong communities, I wanted to take the time to try and understand some of the unique challenges of some of the most difficult community circumstances. Now, I'm talking specifically about refugee settlements and communities of displaced people. It's unfortunately true that camps and shelters for people who have been forced to move are growing massively in recent years. Conflicts like those in Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Syria, and most recently in Ukraine have caused millions of people to flee to neighboring countries and further abroad in just the last couple of years. Conflict is certainly not the only reason, though, for mass migration. Natural disasters are being exacerbated, and floods, fires, droughts, and storms are increasing in intensity and frequency, causing a growing population of climate refugees. Now, while there are many different approaches to solving these growing issues, I want to focus on how to bring progress and hope of regeneration to the people in these vulnerable living situations. Now, I have my own experiences from living in developing areas of the world. I distinctly remember teaching courses in the houses of my neighbors in Guatemala in order to build more efficient earthen cook stoves for people who were used to cooking on open fires in one-room adobe houses. During my travels, I've seen and interacted with many communities of few material and financial means, but I've never worked closely with displaced people or gotten to know the challenges that they face. And so for this perspective, I reached out to Maura Gamble about her direct work with the refugee settlements in different countries. Morag is the founder of the Global Permaculture Education Institute. She teaches permaculture educators and permaculture activists online, but also in universities, libraries, eco-villages, community gardens, and especially refugee settlements on six different continents. She experiments with one planet living at her eco-village home in Australia and in her award-winning permaculture garden where she has lived since 1998 with her family. Morag also mentors the Global Perma Youth and has supported over 1,500 refugee youth and women to access free permaculture education through her charity, Ethos Foundation. She's a permaculture writer, podcaster, YouTuber, and blogger who speaks up for the well-being of life on this planet as a planetarian or permaculture activist. Morag is also a core member of Permaculture for Refugees and collaborates with permaculture humanitarian organizations and speaks daily to refugees. In this interview, we start by exploring how Morag's background in permaculture instruction led to her working with displaced communities. She helps me to understand both the differences and the similarities between refugee communities compared to others that she has worked with. We also talk in depth about how permaculture education is relevant to people who've been displaced and are living in extremely difficult circumstances with scarce resources. We shed light on the concepts that have really stuck with the people that she has worked with there and how they've integrated the concepts into their own knowledge, their own culture, and interpretations. It's really worth sticking around to the end of this as well as we explore Morag's vision for how the international community could transform how it deals with displaced communities, and how we could all begin to see these people for the incredible potential and the gifts that they bring with them to the communities they seek refuge in, and how we might contribute to their recovery and integration. We also explore how people who are interested in getting involved with this kind of important work can get started. In fact, Morag has an online course right now that can serve as a stepping stone into bringing hope and ecological abundance to these vulnerable communities, and I've included a special link to learn more about it at the top of the page on the show notes for this episode on the website. So with all of that said, I'll hand things over now to Morag Gamble. This is, I think, a really good topic to, to introduce you through because of the focus on building community. 
Mm-hmm. And that's been so central to your teachings from what I know of your work. And though you're an educator of educators as well, the idea is to disseminate this information so that people can apply it down at the community level and adapt it to their local conditions, right? Absolutely. Now, yeah. with all of these interactions that you've had and the experience from around the world, how did you get into working with refugee communities? Uh, I've often done a, a lot of work with uh, various communities around the world. I mean, the, my permaculture journey's taken me to so many different countries and I end up in a lot of villages. And, and in one of those villages in Africa, part of the course that was being held, uh, I, as, as I'm getting more experienced in permaculture, I find myself stepping back more. And it's really interesting because I don't, I, I see the, the, the importance of uh, just supporting local educators and local systems to emerge. And, and one of these courses in Africa, um, we were able to help sponsor a number of people to come in from various refugee settlements. And it was in, in that that I started to build a really direct um, friendship with a number of people who are from refugee settlements. And in hearing about their stories, how they ended up there, how long they'd been there, what life was like there, once you kind of know that kind of stuff, you can't unknow it. And there was just no way of not working with them from that point because in terms of what permaculture is able to offer, it's such the practical kind of basic know-how and skills and resources and community building type of activity that is is necessary there and and not just me saying that it's it's as they take it back themselves and start to set up these programs the kind of stories that I've been hearing is that you know this is kind of a difference that is making a difference in our communities it's helping to bring people together it's addressing basic things like Um, you know nutrition so that you know our kids have something to to put into their bodies that keeps them well because there's so much sickness in these um, in these settlements and so you know so many stories um, coming back how positive it it is just one thing led to another and um, and now I, I feel like you know most of the world in which I work with permaculture is is through that lens I mean it's it's an everyday thing that I do now And what have been some of the things that you have noticed that are unique or different about these refugee communities beyond just the hardship and the circumstances that many of the people are there under? Because I would imagine that they're still mostly similar to communities around the world. Like we have more in common than we do in difference. But what are some of the things that are worth taking stock of and being aware of, at least as far as differences? Mm. Well, I think... I think one of the key things that makes it work so beautifully there, which may be a bit of a difference, is that the need is so great and so it becomes so much more clear that these are, these are the kinds of solutions that help to bring the changes that are, are needed. You know, if you're living in a camp where you get, you know, $3 a month to help you buy food it's just simply not enough and so this is this becomes essential but what i see you know those same the same kind of things that i've seen in helping to start up city farms and community gardens in in various places as well it's that it's that need to have that sense of belonging like even though you know they're displaced they're in a land that's not their own. They have no sense of ownership or connection to that place. Some of them have actually been there for maybe 20 years. And so that even though they know that then it's not their place, that there is a sense of connection and they know people in that area. And there's a, a sense of mutuality that unless they look after each other, there is really no one else. And so this sense that, we, we saw this a lot, particularly um, during the lockdowns here in Australia and in the bushfires and in the, in the floods that are happening now. It's this local communities banding together and really identifying what, are the, what do we actually need and who are the people who we can reach out to and support the most. So what I'm noticing um, in, the, in the refugee communities, for example, 
there's one particular man that I work with a lot. His name is Ben Mariki, and he he actually goes into the UNHCR and says, who are the people who are the most vulnerable people in this community that need this the most? And they listed out like, like a, a huge list of people who are refugees themselves, elderly people who were taking in um, uh, foster kids, uh, orphans who, and so these communities of those people are, are probably in the most needy that he'd, he'd ever seen. And so he ran a program for them. And so this is kind of a little bit like what you see in, in the kind of community garden model in Australia. It's, it's saying, well, what is the need that we have in this community? Where are the people that need the help? What is the kind of help that they need? And really using that permaculture um, systems design approach, with, you know, and deeply connecting with what's actually going on rather than coming in with a program. You know, he's told me so many times uh, that, there's been millions of dollars sent into these communities, but look around me, like, where is it gone? I don't, I don't actually know where it's gone. Whereas when we come in with our, we are the refugees, we know what the problems are, we know what the solutions are. We just need a little bit of a hand to, to get them started. And so that's kind of where our links have, have come in. It's like telling the story of what they're doing and what they need to the global permaculture community and just doing a, a crowdfunding, basically, it's a very simple model. And but 100% of what gets crowdfunded around the world gets sent directly into those communities. And I kind of noticed the, the similarity too in, in terms of how we got something like North East Street City Farm started in Brisbane. Um, that the grants that came in seemed to control and determine the type of project that got set up. It was like the terms of reference were determined by a government program or an external program that didn't actually necessarily meet what was going on on the ground. And so uh, we ended up not taking those kind of grants and just speaking to the local community, going up and down the streets, going talking to local businesses, you know, knocking on doors and saying, look, this is a community project, you know, how can it serve your needs? And, you know, is there any way that you could support if you got, you know, like, oh, there's that old fence you got out the front there. Are, are, are you throwing that out? We'd love to use that, you know, like just finding resources and repurposing them. And so that's how the projects right in the middle of the cities in Australia got started. And it feels similar in that way. It's about the resilience and the robustness and just that, that earnestness of, of care and taking responsibility of the community that you're in. Now, I know that there's different scales within the whole refugee crisis. And the kind of refugees that I've been working with, particularly the refugee communities, are the ones that have been there for a little while. So it's not that kind of, you know, just arrived in the land. Um, but having said that, uh, what's happening now, you know, there's the Ukraine crisis happening right now. At the same time, I just got word that the crisis in um, the Democratic Republic of Congo has amplified and there's thousands and thousands of people flocking over the border again. And these refugee settlements that are already crowded all the way across throughout East Africa are getting flooded with new people. What we're noticing now with, with people who have access to these permaculture skills and tools and resources and seeds and, and places to share will actually um, welcome them, welcome them in and help to get them started and get them a little plot and get them going in meeting their basic needs. And so, and then they ask us to help with that support. So the response is coming from within the community and, and that's kind of showing like a strength and a, yeah, that, that robustness. Like someone said to me the other day about the farmers here in Australia after the floods, like we're not talking about resilience at the moment um, because resilience is about being able to bounce back. Like we don't feel particularly bouncy right now. We just need to be really robust. We need to be just strong and deeply rooted, connected and supporting each other and just ground ourselves. And it feels like that's what's happening um, in these communities there. And uh, it's, it's, it's the enormity of the situation can become overwhelming. And I know when I first started working with these communities, how overwhelmed I felt. Like, I'm not even making a drop in the ocean difference. 
But what you start to see, though, is the living nature of community and how something that it works well myceliates. And what might seem like a drop in the ocean here, if it makes sense, if it's working, can ripple out across communities. And, and this is what's happening. And uh, it's an absolutely extraordinary thing to take note of. Um, and so what, uh, what is going on at the moment is that it's very rapid people teaching people, people helping others, people sharing their tools, their seeds, their resources, their land, um, running education programs for each other, setting up youth spaces, particularly youth spaces seems to be a youth spaces and, and spaces for women, spaces where people can just be and connect and this, like there's trauma that we could never even begin to understand in these places. And so having somewhere which has a sense of peace around a sense of living or that you can create even if they go there and do no work, but just go there to be or go there to take care of the kids. It's different from sitting in a little hut in a hot, dry, dusty place. And so the gardens are important for that reason. But um, what I'm seeing is that it's, got, it's, it's becoming viral because they're taking videos. So they've all got little, they're taking videos, they're uploading them onto YouTube, they're making songs about it. I've so, seen some of those, they're so lovely. Yeah, you know, and and so you know, one young man said to me, "This is the difference." You know, like this is this is what we need. This is going to help us to make a living. This is going to help us to eat. It's going to help us to stay healthy. But it's not rippling far enough. This has to go across all of our camps to all of our people fast. The only way it's going to get out is we sing it and we dance it. Like it has to become a cultural thing. And so, I've learned so much in in working with these communities about the cultural aspect of permaculture, the permaculture. And, um, and so to me, that seems to be something that's, that's taken, taken off. So in one camp it began, and then as they put up their songs, some of the other young people in other camps said, oh, that's what I want to do. So they're now writing songs, doing plays. We're just about to get a, a, a permaculture TV show happening that's doing kind of like theatre and I'm um, telling stories. Uh, there's children's books that are being written. There's all of these different sort of writing and songs. There was the slam poetry um, session not that long ago and um, a dance troupe that's forming. And all of this is just, just happening because it, it, it's, it's kind of that radical hope thing of, of bringing, bringing through change, but also because it's something that can, can help them access funds to support them in their daily life, um, get to go to school, and also connect them with a global community of friends. And so, you know, one of the things that we've been doing too is anyone who can, with their language or data, and we often help them with that, who can access our, we have an online permaculture educators program. So they, they can get into learning about doing the permaculture design course or the permaculture teachers course. And so they can, Anyone who's in any of these camps can access this for free. So they become a, a full member of the whole global community that's learning. So they get to do all the design studios and share what they're doing. And it's this global community of practice, I think, that is helping so much to make the connections. So there's some people within the, the course who are sponsoring others to even get to university. There's some that are sponsoring like a well being put in summer. And it's this being part of a global community that, you know, you can imagine there's this place called Kakama Refugee Settlement that um, Kakama apparently means nowhere in Swahili. So they're nobody because they don't have land in nowhere land. And when all of a sudden you start to become part of this global community and people are checking in with you and saying, how's it going? And, um, you know, making sure that you're okay. And if, if you've got malaria or typhoid or you know, COVID, that there's someone that's, that's reaching out to help and support you in that. So that, I think that's also a big part of it, the people care. Um, you know, I, I used to start off by just saying, okay, well, we're just, we're just supporting the permaculture educators programs, um, the, the programs which help to ripple this out. But then if one of those people who's leading that program, son or daughter, is really, you know, really sick or someone else's 
fall off a motorbike and gash their leg open and they attending to them, then the project doesn't happen anyway. So the people care side of it expanded out beyond the permaculture thing exactly into like, well, what's going on in the community and how can we help you tend to that? Um, and so I think, you know, the thing that I'm really wanting to say with this is that what, what's driving the programs that we're involved in is the communities themselves. So it's not coming in saying, okay, we have a program for you. This is going to help you. It's like, what do you need? Just And just listening. And so this is part of that open conversation that's going on and then connecting the dots. So there's now actually a whole network all throughout East Africa of all um, these young groups and they're talking to each other. So they have uh, WhatsApp networks and they're doing, so they might've done a course in one spot and then some of the people who are kind of like the champions of that go with the teacher to, to train in the next spot so they get to be apprentices. And then all of them are sort of sharing their stories, sharing their music. There's multi-camp collaborations in music. And then they stay in touch by these networks. And, and so the, the learning goes on. If there's something that gets stuck in, they always know where they can drop into and they can drop into the global community as well. Well, there's so many beautiful things that you mentioned there that I'd like to unpack. And I think we should start with how one of these projects starts in the first place, because you were talking about how perhaps there are sponsors or other people who are trying to support from outside and they come in with their own agendas and don't necessarily listen to what the individual communities and the members there need for themselves. And I'm wondering how you apply the principles of observation and interaction to understand the unique situation and the needs of the place where you are as well as how they want to see it grow before starting a project? Mm. Well, I think, you know, taking another principle of the, the small and slow solutions is probably the beginning point. And so we, you know, when someone has reached out, um, we begin with a small project and get to know each other, get to find what are, you know, like open up that thread of conversation, build the trust and, and build a flow. And, and through that to be identifying what are the needs and what are the, what are the issues that are being faced and, and what kind of help is actually needed and is there someone else within that community? And so starting just to, to open up. So a lot of what I'm doing is really just asking a whole lot of questions all the time, not all of one go. But just that, you know, in conversation, oh, have you, have you thought about this or what about that? Or did you know that there's this group over here and just starting to try and help create those connected threads? And uh, so, but the design of the project comes through, through them learning together. So, for example, uh, one of the, one of the Bemri I was talking about before, for example, he does a lot of videos. And so he will start to video a project or a, or a class and he talks to the students and he's mapping out what they're doing in the field and, and then he'll share that. And then other people see that and say, oh, this is just what we would love to see happening in our community. Can you come help us? So it's by invitation, not by going out. So it's it's it kind of goes that way around. And, and so if, and also if someone approaches me separately and they've seen it I'll just send the request back into the community and we can sort of have an open conversation or I'll let them talk about it first like I, I'm not I don't I'm not interested in controlling this it's it's um, completely led from the community so if they decide you know that okay this camp over here is ready they've got a group of people who want to get going and so we just help to fund them to get there uh, and if someone else from another camp is also interested we'll fund them to come along as well. So it's this three-way, it's this buddying system and, and apprenticing. And then when they go around the next time, they'll go over to this person's place and bring someone from another place and a new person. And so it just keeps building and evolving in that way. Uh, and so really the small and slow solutions is, is the core um, part of it. And from my perspective, it is very much about um, the listening and the observation and the noticing and, uh, and then talking that through with each other. I mean, one of the, one of the courses that happened when I, I mentioned that um, the Bemerick used to talk to people about, well, who are the people most in need? And 
he was actually called into the office of prime minister at one point and he and who who the people who oversee the camps and they said and he was a bit worried he texted me before he says I don't know what's going to happen they might stop everything that we're doing because this is sort of not approved activity I'm just doing this because I see that this needs to be done um he now um, just as an aside, he now has full support of the Office of Prime Minister for doing this and has even been invited by them to run programs um, and set up kind of like pre-university courses for refugee youth to be able to then go forward and um, so like accredited training type programs using permaculture, which is fantastic. Um, so they, they called him into the Office of Prime Minister and said, look, why is it that you're only ever doing this for refugees? Like, what about the host community? They need it too, because you've got you've got to remember that when a whole lot of people come flooding across the border and are settled in a place, that place was someone's place. You know, the host community that's there, and and very little attention ever gets paid to them as well. You know, and they're struggling. And so he said, "Sure, absolutely. Look, you know." That's really important. So he, he started to run a course. It was with the women from the host community and the women from um, the refugee community. And they'd never, ever spoken to each other before. They're actually afraid of each other or judgmental of one another. Like it was just this separation. The kids wouldn't play. There's nothing. You know, they'd live side by side almost, but no connection. And so this course, he created, you know, he created this space where there was this deep, connection and respect built and there's this film at the end where they're going you know we've learned a thousand ways to love one another and we just don't want this to end like during the course they were going across and they were helping each other garden they're helping each other cook they were trading all sorts of things and then the the um you know the husband started to be invited in to meet one another and the children started to play and like simple thing as a permaculture course can do that to build bridges between communities that had not spoken for 20 years and create it, start to create opportunities for work and livelihoods on both sides, which I think is really important. So there's just so many different ways that it can begin, but it really does begin with that, that observation and that listening and noticing where are the places that the need seems to call most strongly uh, after that women's course was finished, one of the, there's a really interesting projects that set up. So they wanted to start to do business together. And uh, so one of the projects was to set up a, a permaculture piggery. And, and so uh, we were called upon to fund the first five pigs and they threw all their local resources, built this beautiful natural piggery. And uh, so the first five pigs went in there. And now I think, within a short space of time, there's been about 126 families that have benefited from the pigs. And I keep getting these photographs of families taking home little pigs. And so they get, to, they get to eat, but they also take them home and breed them up and then pass them on. So the whole idea is that the, the, the mother set, the father set, go, get passed on so they can start a whole new one. So it's about building that abundance. So it's, it's not just about harvesting it's about paying it forward and building up so that that local group has enough funds so together they need to work to create the income and once they have the income that group can then fund individual exercises like um, businesses what he said he's noticed that when when an experiment would come in to a refugee community they say okay we'll give you all like the equivalent of 100 bucks go and start your business he said stuff happens, you know, like someone needs shoes, someone needs, you know, a pair of jeans or someone needs some food. The business will never get started. You know, like that was part of that millions of dollars has come in and, and nothing has happened. He said, this way, we start a business together as a community. And as a community, we design it, we make it happen. And we all have responsibility to one another to make that happen. And then when it's working, we can help another community pay it forward and we can also help each other start our own businesses. And so it's definitely that community aspect of it, which he said is driving the success of them actually creating local enterprises. And the same is happening with um, like community vegetable farms, seed saving networks, 
Um, the current thing that's just happening right now is um, building up mushroom farms. And this is a particularly important thing because um, uh, they've noticed with, particularly with young babies, that it really helps if they can have like powdered mushroom that will help build up nutrition and um, help to keep their babies healthier because, you know, there's still so much um, infant death and, um, and illness there. And also to help with the lactating mothers. So, so the mushroom farm is, is happening right now. They've built this beautiful mud brick um, mushroom house with um, natural reeds on the top, and they're just getting all, all that kitted out now. And another thing too is looking at how they can, um, just getting a, a briquette maker, like a hand-pressed briquette maker to use um, community waste to make briquettes rather than going around and chopping out trees and, and at the same time too trying to build food forests so that they can do the, the trimming. So there's like these multiple layers of, of um, community benefit. But for the first time really they're saying we're seeing the commons and planting the commons and doing common projects. And I think that that has been a really important part of their, their particular approach, that the community is at the heart, which I can imagine is incredibly hard when you when it, when it isn't your place and there's many cultures and you're feeling not supported yourself in the first instance. But I think that's what, I think, you know, what it's saying is that's all we really have. And so unless we nurture that, then the children growing up in this place will not have that to take forward with them. Like we grew up with it. We have a bit of a sense of it. But the kids who are growing up here um, need to feel into that. And, you know, I think this is Rosemary Morrow talks a lot about permaculture in refugee context because she says it's such an important skill. It helps the communities are there to redesign the places they're in so that they actually can eat well and live well and have access to fresh water and, and some kind of income. It helps if they get a chance to go back home because their homes are often destroyed and it gives them a chance to redesign, you know, see that differently and redesign. And also if they get a chance to actually go somewhere else, then they have the skills to, to know how to look at a new place and to design that and to think forward into that. So I really like the way that she described that. I think, you know, more than, you know, because mostly if you see what happens in training in a refugee settlement, it'll be about technique. It'll be about how to set up a garden. And it's like, well, that might, you don't, you need the bigger picture. You need the design thinking. And uh, I, you know, to be able to, to really feel into that sort of systems thinking. And, and it, I think this is also part, part of it, that bigger picture thinking, which really brings out that sense of hope and possibility and, and agency uh, and like design thinking, like spark something in you that, uh, you know, like it's the possibilities lens, I guess. Like, oh, there, there is something possible. So like one of the young guys said to me once, he said, I, before we started doing this, he said, I was, I was suicidal. Like there is absolutely what do you do in a place like this as a young person? Like, I don't see, I didn't see any hope, like anything to do. And, you know, there's massive amounts of um, violence and abuse that goes on. And so finding these hubs of heart and possibility and, and, and joy in music and dance and, and, and sharing that with someone else. I mean, one of the things that he told me, this young man, he said, what turned it around for me was me realising that I could actually help someone else. I could help, like, the grandmothers. That made me feel like I had value, that I was an important member of this community, that this was something really useful that I could do. And, and it just, you know, every day there's stories like that. And, you know, one of the things that I find hardest is how... How do we actually share this out as much as possible? You know, the stories that I hear every day are, are just incredible. But it's kind of hard to find a place to share the amount of amazing stories that keep they are generating. I I don't know, I'd love to, I'd love to hear if you have any ideas for that, because it's um, you know, I can I can write it out, but there's a certain, I notice even in you know the social media posts that I do about it. You know, I might post about what's going on in the refugee settlements 
and you know like this is the number of views it gets and then I might write about like a herb and like this is the amount of views you get and so it's such a fickle kind of I I don't know I don't know how to how to address that but anyway I just keep sharing the stories because I think what they're doing is absolutely incredible so you're under the impression or at least what you've seen from your statistics is that the posts that you're putting out, the information you're putting out about this type of work, especially from the refugee camps, is getting far less activity and interest than perhaps technical information or design concepts? Yeah, I think so. And I think maybe it's because, I don't know. I mean, I think it's because there's, there's so much, there's so much going on in the world that, you know, maybe people just don't want to hear about things that's happening on the other side of the world, that's really challenging, um, you know, because when you think about well, why are those wars happening, I mean, those wars are happening because of the process of colonisation, because of the ongoing mining for resources and the mining for those resources are the things that, you know, go into our technology. And how far do we want to really question what's at the root of these conflicts and um, it's easier not to think about it, not to know about it and to, you know, and people have also been struggling themselves with COVID, with floods, with fires, with everything that's going on in the world. And, and it becomes hard to sort of look out too far, I think. Sure. We start to reach a personal capacity that we just can't take anymore. It's just not what we're looking for. And like I feel that as well. I'm sure everyone reaches their threshold and it, it's just too much. But yeah, it's very important to, to make sure that we still pay attention to these communities that we are connected to, even if indirectly, right? And I, I want to go back to something that you said before about the inspiration behind the possibilities in these design techniques that you are helping to facilitate. And I know from my own observations in both taking permaculture-related courses and helping to facilitate them in different parts of the world, um, there is already such a rich existing knowledge of the land and cultivation techniques that there is to draw on. And if you start to bring in perhaps too strict of an idea of what these principles can be applied to do, it limits the possibilities for them to apply it and connect it with their own knowledge that they, I mean, especially in places like where you've been, there must be such a rich heritage that comes out as people connect with the design principles, but make it relevant to their own knowledge and history. What are some of the things that you've seen emerge from the con, uh, yeah, the, the, the connection of those things? Mm. Well, I just want to say first, before the sort of two different responses that I want to give to this one is that, that there has been such a long history of colonization and oppression and, um, not being connected to the land and being, you know, workers on other people's, you know, monoculture farms, that a lot of the knowledge has dissipated, um, you know, a long time ago. And, and that is really, I was really surprised by the level of that the, and, the, and the amount of change that had happened also in, you know, with the Green Revolution, how much shift had happened in people's mind about what was what was good farming and what was a good way to move forward. Um, on the other side of that, there is this fiercely proud um, uh, focus on plants and medicine and cultural heritage at the same time. But it seems to be like it's a small pocket and it, it seems to be growing and finding voice. And so that, that part, and also things like, how to prepare foods, different types of foods. So the, what's coming through strongly is the, the cooking side or different ways of storing food. So you use, you know, like how do you prepare and store food? So instead of just getting the, you know, the GMO corn that's imported from somewhere else, like how can you actually grow and store and process all the different kinds of things? So we're seeing films that are, you know, sharing about, you know, the, the storage, how, how do you, even how you store seeds in, you know, earthen pots that you can make or how you, how you process the cassava and how you do all these different things with plants. And so that has been really amazing. And also the knowledge about plants for, for medicine, you know, what, what plant you have for, you know, for addressing typhoid or, or, you know, children's 
issues and women's issues. But the problem that they were facing was that they they didn't have the space for the gardens or they didn't have um, the climate because they were in a different place. So if you'd come from Democratic Republic of Congo and you landed up in the deserts of Takana, up in the top of, you know, it just, it, it wasn't the right place. And so you tried things that you knew, but they weren't working. So it's about trying to um, take, take that traditional knowledge and apply the lens of design thinking to, to reapply that somehow in the local context. And so, so both, you know, both that erosion of confidence in tradition and also the, the actual knowledge of it um, at the same time as finding those fractions, um, that is what the role of these courses is, is doing. It's, and weaving that in local languages, um, bringing in local songs, bringing in um, local illustrations to describe them because if you go and share out like a permaculture book and it's just filled with white faces with you know temperate gardens like what does that mean like if you get that in a refugee cell it doesn't really relate to you like these big houses with zone one two three four five around them it doesn't make any sense so you need to kind of adapt it and localize it and that's one of the other projects that we're really working to support is um, there's a whole group of young illustrators and, and storytellers who are retelling permaculture through their refugee lens and, uh, yeah, redrawing that. Sure. Now, despite the association of poverty and a lack of resources in communities like this, I'm sure you've observed richness in social capital, intellectual, spiritual, and these other forms of capital that have a lot of value, especially when they can be applied through a design lens like you teach. How have you seen or helped to leverage these uh, sources of richness to overcome some of the deficits in financial or material resources that are needed to get a project off the ground? One of the things I think that is most helpful is that if, if someone gets something, it tends to be for everyone. You know, like, you know, I've, I've got this project, like everyone comes in and shares in it. So you, you can't actually give money to one person. If you give money to one person or a project, it becomes everyone's. And so that community approach right there and, and the idea of, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's it. I mean, I think that's the core. It's not about me. It's about we. And that feels so much easier somehow and uh, more well-developed in that context. And, and I think that, you know, from all the other examples that I've been sharing, that comes through so much in, in collaborating to, to do the seeds and the nurseries and the, and the, um, the food forests, the collective space and, and reimagining the commons um, in places where that hasn't existed. Because... They don't know if they're ever going to get home again. And so all they have is that social capital. Like they don't have physical capital at all. And, and the lessons from that have been quite extraordinary for, for me and also the, all the groups that are kind of meeting up with them. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I wanted to mention before too was that through the connection with this global community community, uh, the lessons that they're learning are being shared out the other way. So it's not just this one-way flow. I've actually noticed that many of the most inspirational moments in many of the courses and, and sessions that have been run is coming from the sharing of, the, of the, those people who've ended up in these refugee communities. And so, you know, one of the things too that I think is important to, to keep in mind, and it's hard, it's hard to not slip into it, you know, they're saying, okay, I might be someone who's displaced from my community, but don't always just call me a refugee. Like, my name is Paulino, or my name is John, or my name is Sakina, and I am, you know, from this place, and I am, you know, this is me. And I am, because it's so easy to kind of objectify them as sort of like this group of suffering people, whereas they all come with, you know, all their you know, dreams and hopes and, and families and all their, their contextualities and to really engage just not as someone who's going in to be a saviour, but just to connect. And I think this possibility of connection and, and one thing that makes it work is that 
it's a relationship that so it's not like going okay well let's fund these people so I talked about the lack of people caring about it the only way that I found that people will care about this is they have a friendship with them so it's we create as many opportunities as possible where people can actually meet and talk and laugh and listen to their music and and share stories about families like just be human together and you know I can't I can't begin to think how it would be possible without even that that sense of of connection and then that opens up our minds to think oh well, what's happening in my local community who are the refugees in my community or who are the people that are struggling and starts to open like it's a bit of a crack in the door of our heart somehow to think oh like let me just see beyond my own backyard my own reality or my little neighborhood to think like we thrive when we all thrive i'm curious too what are some of the things that you have learned from these experiences working with refugee communities that you've applied to so much of your other work as an educator and a facilitator around the world? Oh gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, well, in terms of uh, in terms of how I run my work, that is that there is always a very strong gift economy that runs throughout it. So. At least, so every time someone signs up for a course of mine, at least another person or more is has access to it for free. So there's always this, so it's kind of like this social enterprise that works and it that's how it runs. I have, I've set up, so I have an ecology of organisations. So there's the Permaculture Education Institute and there's the Perma Youth. So this is this global network of young people connecting around permaculture and these young people are, connecting from, you know, from Australia to the camps, to India, to all over. Um, so that's another part. And then there's the Ethos Foundation, which is a registered charity. And that's where any of the funds that are collected come into there. And then I send 100% across to that, those communities. And last year we were able to raise enough funds to support uh, about 1,500 young people to complete their permaculture design certificate courses and start up permaculture demonstration centres, where learning can take place, where seed banks can be created. And with this music, one of the things like, so now um, that this first band that, I don't know if you heard the ones from um, Kakamu, in uh, Kakamu Refugee Settlement, that music has got out on radio around the world and it got into the ears of the Grateful Dead's foundation. And I, I hadn't heard about their foundation. I hadn't, didn't even approach them, but in the end, they've now helped them to construct a, a music studio. So it's a mud brick solar powered music studio that is also a permaculture learning center. And it's a place that's gonna be where, you know, they're gonna make permaculture music and other music and, and run a permaculture radio show. And, and then the story of that has got out. So now there's these little permaculture music studios starting to pop up in different places as well. So there's, I, I think what I'm learning a lot about is, is being in conversation, sharing stories, to be more of a storyteller rather than an instructor, to be able to, to listen and, and notice what is working in a particular context and culture and help people to redefine what permaculture means in their space rather than trying to deliver what I think it is. Because it's only... It only means that much to me and to my context, but it's and and also to connect people in this global community and to acknowledge that you know we're all working together in it, we may only be a drop where we are, like I said before, but when we start to notice that all of these drops are part of this whole network, and it kind of feels like a flip of a flip of the power in some ways, because you think of, it's what's going on underneath the ground. It's it's not seen that much necessarily in conventional society, but it pops up as like beautiful mushrooms in different places and nourish it. And the more compost we put on it in different places, the more it's gonna keep growing. And so so it's that, it's that. And feeling that the, that the, the possibility is there, even despite everything that's going up on the top, that if we focus on keeping on composting and nourishing and tending to the, to the micro, to the like the bacterial level of what's going on, that we can create that robustness, that if a crisis happens somewhere, that there is the support nearby that can help to, to recolonize that area. It's like, you know, when, you, when you're gardening, 
you don't completely empty out a whole garden. You leave the perennials in so they can help to recolonize a bit that's been disturbed. And, you know, the same kind of thing happens in community as long as there's enough going on around. And so really seeing that working and seeing the possibilities of what can happen with, with, with just that storytelling and the connection, um, I, it's, it's incredibly empowering to those who are involved in it and, and uplifting um, for, for new people who come to permaculture and then think, oh, I just thought it was about backyard gardening. But what I'm seeing is I can actually be connected to this global network and feel like I'm here, but everything that I do here is actually helping us to have this one planet way of life and contributing to the future. And I think that is really important um, to, to help to paint that bigger picture. Oh, for sure. And I would imagine too, as you've facilitated and been a part of so many of these projects, you've probably started to notice some of the patterns of elements that are either present or missing in the ones that succeed and take off and myceliate and those that falter and start to lose steam. What are some of the yeah. ones that have, uh, have contributed to the more successful projects and are noticeably present in many of those that have continued and grown? Well, I think... I think it comes back to, you know, the thing that you mentioned right at the start is the community, that it's it's not about a leader taking control of a project and trying to drive it. It's uh, one of, someone described it to me as saying that, um, you know, I'm only a leader if I have as many people with me leading too and that part of what I'm doing is trying to cultivate that leadership. And so there's this, sense of people working together so that there's never just one person driving it. There's a collective that's working together and constantly bringing in new people and buddying them up. And so it's, it's the outreach work. It's the demonstration work. It's the thinking beyond, beyond even, like obviously beyond your backyard, but beyond your neighbourhood and even beyond your region into thinking, well, how does this connect with someone else? And, and if someone is, is calls for help for that to be sharing that out, it's like they're paying it forward. So when it comes in the other way around and there's like someone leading and it seems to be everything sucked into that central point, that it just kind of ends up kind of imploding after a while. Whereas when it, it's, it's kind of like it builds the abundance and it's, uh, that feels like where the strength is. So it's definitely in the community and that happens by the, the way in which it's communicated in the storytelling, in the, in the possibilities lens. And so, I, I mean, I've said that before, but I just think that is kind of like, for me, that is what makes it work. When they share, this is what happened in our community and this is how you do it. And the, the, the music goes out, the instructions go out, the, the difference, showing the difference, showing the before and after, showing showing it in video, showing it in photographs, um, talking it, um, creating circles, safe spaces where that can happen. And so I think it's in the type of leadership and, and also in making sure that it can happen with like on the smell of an oily rag, that it's not something that needs a massive amount of money. If someone sends me an application for $80,000 for a project, but I know over here someone else has just asked for $1,000 for the same thing. Like where is the $79,000 difference? There's something that's going on in that project. So it's that starting small and then building it up and becoming a self-generating system. So really thinking about how to um, not, be, not to develop dependence um, but to enable a self-generating system to emerge and it's that flipping the model of, of support. Certainly. And so with all of this potential and all of these inspiring ideas and, and testimonies from what you've seen in these communities, we're still in a cycle of displacement of people for conflict reasons, for you know climate emergency reasons, all sorts of disasters that are, are, are contributing to the displacement of people all over the world. And it does not seem to be subsiding. I'm wondering what your vision 
of what you would like to see realized in the way of how the world treats and invests in refugee populations around the world? What sort of policies or changes in consciousness would be required for that to happen? Because you know this is not going to subside anytime soon. Mm, great question. You know, I think, for example, there's one place down in um, just outside of where I live in these sort of one in a thousand year flood zone. And the community is is leading this um, sort of role in, in helping community. And so it's about creating commons where people can land safely. And so this commons is a place where people can build temporary housing safely. People can grow food safely. So where are like where are we actually thinking about what is the possibilities of of having um, good quality housing, public food spaces in urban areas, uh, places where people can very quickly um, access a little piece of land um, and some tools and some seeds. I remember um, actually going and talking a long time ago with some people in Cuba and Havana and, Havana and they were saying, you know, one of the things that's made a difference, like if we need to, we can go to our government and say, we need some land, some seeds and some tools so we can actually grow some food. And, and that was provided, you know, in, this, in the so-called special period there, that that was um, something that was available. Like we need to acknowledge that we are in a global special period now and this focus on not just delivering aid food being like surplus food that is not nourishing food but actually creating the spaces where people can grow it. At the same time, though, you know, like there's a difference between the emergency needs and the um you know the longer term refugees if you know you're going to be in a place for a while before you can go back home or or settle you need to have a space but if it's a temporary one and you're in trauma there's probably not much that you want you're probably not going to want to start growing food right then and there so there's kind of there's different things but if you have community food forests like uh spaces that are are grown where people can access food there are so many people now here in Australia, I don't know what it's like where you are, but this, the homelessness is going through the roof. And this is, this is here in Australia. We're not even talking about, you know, African refugee communities at the moment. Where are those people accessing shelter? Where are those people accessing a place to, to shower and, and go to the bathroom? Where are they getting their food from? So having emergency housing, emergency food, community food systems, uh, set up i think that's kind of like a, a key thing and that we start to build into our, our urban planning a process of um, imagining that we have farms and food systems embedded throughout like there's some examples from denmark that i think are absolutely brilliant where i don't know if you've ever come across the places um the kind of co-housing communities in just outside of copenhagen where the best, the middle part of the, the subdivision is actually a farm. And so the best part of the land was set out as a farm and all of the wastewater and the nutrients came down. So if you had, you could create sort of rapidly developed urban farm type, tiny house villages. We have a farm in the middle with houses around the edge, the wastewater coming down into the farm, um, the nutrients collected and fed to the farm. So these kind of like rapidly developed eco-village models that are can be turned into emergency housing. It doesn't take a lot of um, effort to set up. It doesn't take a lot of um, time either. This is, the models exist. And I think possibly it's time to, for us as, as designers to be having this conversation with emergency um, groups. There is a group called Realliance and also um, Regenerosity and, and Permaculture for Refugees, who organizations that are high level, uh, high level thinkers, people who are actually already in aid agencies or in the UN who are taking permaculture directly into the heart of it. 
and um, people like Natalie Toper and Warren Brush as well, who are really focusing on this on this work and have, you know, like brilliant systems set up. Like the something that Natalie Toper and Warren Brush have been setting up recently uh, called Sponge Village. It's actually looking at the whole landscape of an area and thinking about that of how you can soak in the water so that you have the possibility for food and the possibility for managing um, you know the floods and the droughts at the same time so it's I am seeing actually permaculture concepts and ideas going in already but this this these techniques need to be amplified we need films about it we need um, the documentation of it more we need the the reporting of it um, more widely um, shared out and so I think it comes back to that that we we value and we share out what we know already I mean we have decades of this experience it feels like now is the time that we anyone who has experience in this needs to be sort of stepping up and speaking up and going to any any kind of possible place that we are, that we have the capacity to speak at to do that whether it be universities councils governments un there are so many skills that i think now is the time for us all to be speaking up and stepping up as much as we possibly can very well said and on that note what advice would you give to people who are feeling called to do this type of work either abroad or within their own communities because as you mentioned too internal displacement is increasing and I mean, you know, maybe not so much as I've noticed here in Spain, but certainly in the United States, the homeless populations and such economic refugees, like we mentioned, this is going to continue. And so we need everybody's hands on deck. What advice would you give to people to get started and to tool up so that they can be effective? I think, you know, the first thing to do would be obviously to 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 be practicing. Like if you're doing it yourself and you're you're understanding how it works in your local community, and then you know you're able to maybe distribute your surplus, put something out on the front, making sure that you know anything that you like plant a garden in the front yard and put like please feel free to harvest or take your harvest down to the local shelter or um, you know start with that local community, and then once you start to connect with that local community of need, possibly you know you might identify that there's other groups that you can support and start to connect as well. You know, it's not to sort of jump out to here, but like myceliate your skills and um, your networks at the same time. If you feel like this, there's something that you'd like to reach out further, like I, I would highly recommend connecting in with those people who already have those relationships and work with that network of relationships rather than just kind of like um, jumping straight in. It's, it takes time, you know, it really takes time to feel into that. And there's, and it can be really easy to jump in and, and kind of make lots of mistakes as well, you know, and so that start small, start from where you are, start from what really makes you feel upset. Like what, what are you feeling that is wrong? What are you feeling is that really moves you into that state of like either feeling angry or afraid or overwhelmed or fearful and to approach that as being, because that's the thing that you'll have the energy to put towards. And, uh, you know, there is no one or one particular direction that we all need to be heading. Like we, we need everyone to be doing something about something that they care about and then sharing that story with other people. So, uh, you know, as you're having, you know, invite people over for dinner Eva, and just share the story about what it is that you're doing to make a difference. And, and maybe someone might be really inspired by that who then go and do something else over here who then talks to, um, you know, like the leader of the school department who will say, let's do this in all the schools. I mean, this happened in the refugee settlement recently. One young man ran a small permaculture workshop for a group of young people. Um, one of the young women in that happened, to, her uncle happened to be the head of all of the schools throughout all of the refugee settlements in Tanzania. And so now there's a permaculture project for all the schools throughout all the, um, the refugee settlements in Tanzania. It was as simple as that. It's like starting small with what you know what to do. And before you know it, if it's, if it's good, if it makes sense, it will naturally spread. Absolutely. 
man, what a fantastic message to put out to people. And I hope that this can get the word out further and facilitate and helping further stories and knowledge as well. Morik, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Oliver. It's been lovely to talk with you. Thanks once again to Morik Gamble. I'll be posting all of the contact links that she mentioned in the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all of the previous episodes from the last five seasons for free. And before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. If you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening right there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. And don't forget as well to check out the link to Morag's online permaculture course through the exclusive link at the top of the page on the show notes for this episode. This could be the first step towards a transformative new career in assisting vulnerable communities to transform their social and ecological trajectory. Well, that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.